So read along. You ready? And here, you'll be thankful I'm the one who's doing the pronunciation, by the way, I'm sure. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai and the tabernacle of meeting on the first day of the second month, on the second year after they had come out of the land of Egypt. Year two, month one, day one. Saying, take a census of all the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their father's houses, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war. Can you say, able to go to war? Okay, every time I say the word, every time I say the word, every time I say the word war, I want you to go, huh, okay? It's like a little cause and response. Does that make sense? It's kind of like if you're doing the haka, right? So let's just practice. War. Okay, some of you are getting it. Let's try it again. Let's try it all together now. War. Okay, one more time. War. Beautiful. Okay, here we go. Verse 3. From 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Did I miss you? How did that work? Let's try that one more time. This is in rehearsal now. This is the real deal. From 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war in Israel. Good. You shall, uh, you and Aaron shall number them by their armies. And with you there shall be a man with every tri- from every tribe and from every head of his father's house. These are the names of the men who shall stand with you. From Reuben, Elidzur, the son of Shedur. From Simeon, Shalumiel, from the son of Zerashadai. From, from Judah, Nachshon, the son of Aminadav. From Issachar, Nathaniel, the son of Zoar. From Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon. From the sons of Yosef, from, from Ephraim, Elishema, the son of Amihud. From, Ama, from Manasseh, Gamaliel, the son of Ped, see, from Badakh, from the Pedachzur. That's always a fun one, isn't it? Just don't name your child that for the sake of, anyways. From Benjamin, Avidian, the son of Gideoni. Sounds a little Italian, doesn't it? Gideoni. Uh, you know, it's an Italian Gideon, but it couldn't be a, the real Gideon because he's always so afraid. Anyways, from Dan, Ahaziel, uh, the son of Aminishadai. From Asher Pagiel, Pagiel, the son of Oskran or Akran. From Gad, Elishaf, uh, the son of Duil. From Naphtali, Achira, the son of Enan. These were the chosen from the congregation leaders. And by the way, you'll need to know them. They'll be in chapter 2 too. Leaders of the fathers' tribes, heads of the divisions in Israel. Then Moses and Aaron took these men who had been mentioned by name, which we just read, and they assembled all the congregation together on the first day of the second month and they recited the ancestry by families. They had to prove that they were part of that family. By their families' houses, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, each one individually. And the Lord commanded Moses, so he numbered them in the wilderness of Sinai. Now the children of Reuben, Israel's oldest son, whose genealogy by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Thank you, some of you. Did I wake you? All who were able to go to war? Those who were numbered of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. From the children of Simeon, their genealogies by the family, by their father's house, those who were numbered according to the numbers of names, every male individually, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. 
beautiful. Those who are numbered in the... You were like, what kind of church is this? Those who were numbered of the tribe of Shimon were 59,300. From the tribe of God. Their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of God were 45,650. From the children of Judah, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Judah were 74,600. From the children of Issachar, their children, their genealogies by families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who all were numbered of the tribe of Issachar, 54,400. From the children of Zebulun, their genealogies by their family, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who are numbered of the tribe of Zebulun were 57,450. That's, there you go. From the tribe of Yosheph, there's two sons. One, the children of Ephraim, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who are able to go to war. Those who are numbered, the tribe of Ephraim, 40,500. You get the idea he's saying it on all of these? You get that? In case you're getting that. So 134, he's talking about Manasseh, all who are able to go to war. 32,200. Verse 36, it's Benjamin. And of course, by their father's house, according to their names, genealogies, 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Benjamin, 35,400. Children of Dan. Dan. Their genealogies, or Dan. Uh, of their, children, their families, of, by their genealogies of the families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. That's good. Don't lose your power now. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Dan were twenty. Or sorry, 62,700. The children of Asher, the genealogies by their family, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Beautiful. Uh, the number of their names of Asher, 41,500. Children of Naphtali, their genealogies by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names, from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war. Those who were numbered of the tribe of Naphtali were 53,400. Now, here's my question. How old do you have to be to be in the battle? Okay, good, because if you missed it... And people go, why do we have to do it over and over? And some people go, I don't know, how old? I'm like, we just said it 12 times! These are the ones who were numbered, as you guessed. Now, you can be thankful, because of the 601,550 people, we only had 12 listed here. He could have listed them all. But if you actually say, Amishadai, wait a minute, aren't you one of the 12 leaders when you're in heaven? If you actually see a guy and his name is Amishadai, and you look and go, aren't you one of the 12 leaders of the tribes? He's like, oh my goodness, what church did you go to? Make sure you tell him, Shoreline Calvary Chapel. <laughs> and he's like, yes, we got ready for war. And then you go, Hur! And he's like, what does that mean? You're like, it's part of the church. I don't know. <laughs> These are the ones numbered, who Moses and Aaron numbered, with the leaders of Israel, 12 men, each one representing his father's house. So all who were numbered of the children of Israel by their father's house from 20 years old and above, all who were able to go to war in Israel. <laughs> Hello. All who were numbered with 603,550. But the Levites were not numbered among them by their father's tribe. For the Lord had spoken to Moses, saying, Only the tribe of Levi you shall not number. Take a census of them among the children of Israel, but you shall appoint the Levites over the tabernacle of the testimony. 
Over all its furnishings, over all things that belong to it, they shall carry the tabernacle and its furnishings. They shall attend to it and camp around the tabernacle. And when the tabernacle is to go forward, the Levite shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be set up, the Levite shall set it up. The outsider who comes near shall be put to death. The children of Israel shall pitch their tents, everyone in his own camp. Everyone by his own standard, according to their families. But the Levites shall camp around the the tabernacle of the testimony, that there be no wrath on the congregation of the children of Israel. And the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. And thus the children of Israel did, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses, so they did. Lord, now as we begin this beautiful, this gorgeous book, Lord, cause it to bud and flourish and come alive for us right now. Thank you so much much for what you're going to do in this time, Lord. Let every second be redeemed. Let it be, as we've read this now, Lord, show us things so profound that it makes us read it a second time and go, whoa, wow, yeah. And Lord, now interface with us. Embrace us, Lord. May we encounter you in such a way that our lives will be permanently changed. And we thank you, Lord, for what you're going to do now. Have your way, Lord. May we have so much fun in your word. Teach, challenge, exhort, bring repentance, Lord. Equip, save, do all the things you intend your word to do by the power of your Holy Spirit now. Come upon me, Lord, in such a way, Lord, that you would speak fluent us, that, Lord, you would speak through my mouth, that every one of us individually will be personally spoken to today as well as corporately. So we commit ourselves to you now. Thank you, Lord. Bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. We are now in the fourth book of the Bible, the fourth of five that is called the Torah, which means teaching, or Pentateuch, which means five books in essence. And the first book of Genesis which means beginnings. Actually, the, the term in the Hebrew is barashit, and that is the first word in the actual writing in the Hebrew. Bereshit, barach, bereshit, archim, yara. Bereshit means in the beginning, and so it means in the beginning. That's the way it works. Interesting, the next four books will start with the word ve. And ve means and. And the idea is quite simple, that God intended the first five books to be seen in an entirety as a single book. That's why we call it the Torah, the Pentateuch. The first one begins with, and I just a quick overview. First one begins with the beginning and the making of the world. By the way, according to what we look at in the timeline in the book of Genesis, it covers roughly about 2,200 years. That's it in that first book. From the creation of the world to man being created in the garden, or man being created, the garden being created, man falls. It is the book that shows us sin. Man becomes corrupt, mankind becomes corrupt. And then comes the flood. And then God calls a man named Abraham who has a son named Isaac, which means laughter because he's born when dad's a hundred. Imagine parent-teacher conferences. Oh, you brought your great-grandfather to show and tell. Nope, it's just my dad. What a joke. He has a son named Yaakov, which gets a name changed to Israel, and Israel has 12 sons. Each will develop a tribe, and thus the 12 tribes of Israel. Just the same way that if Hugo has 12 children, and each of them has of many a large family, it would be the 12 tribes of Hugo. But in this case, it's Israel. As it's the case, the 11th of the 12 boys is sold to Egypt because the boys don't like him. He is the oldest child of the man's favorite wife. God does not endorse polygamy by any means. 
But the man that was already married, and it was a bait-and-switch situation, nonetheless, of the 12 boys that he has, the 11th is the oldest by his favorite wife, and thus he favors him. You know, if you are the favorite boy and you have 11, or, or sorry, 10 older brothers, that's not a good combination. I mean, if you were the worst liked by your father, they'd still drip spit on you and knock you down and give you, like, you know, head burns and stuff. Being his favorite is even worse. So they sell him. And what they do ultimately is they, they go and they throw him in a pit and they look at each other and they go, guys, we can't just leave him down there to die. He's our brother. Let's sell him. So they sell him to Egypt. And Joseph goes to Egypt. He's put in the pit. He's raised up ultimately through a series of events and then becomes second in command only to Pharaoh and is reconciled ultimately to his brothers. And as a result of that, the entire nation of Israel, all 12 tribes reconciled to Israel are now living in Egypt and that ends the book of Genesis and ends with Joseph dying. So now we are roughly at, I mean, to kind of put things into sort of perspective, we're roughly at about 1900 BC. That's how the book ends. The book of Exodus now, as the first book, is a book that teaches us of sin. Now we get the second book. We had, it starts with 400 years of captivity, which is actually not developed much. He just tells us, now please hear me, God never told him to stay in Egypt. Once the famine was over and the people had come, I'd like you to consider, they could have gone back, but they didn't. And for 400 years, they continued to grow, and as they continued to grow, Egypt became more and more intimidated. And as a result, put them under slavery. Hey, you know, the strongest or biggest guy isn't always the bully. And with that in mind, the people become more and more in bondage and they cry out for God to deliver them. By this point, they can't leave. You, know, you could have left in the beginning, but now you can't. And so God raises up Moshe, which by the way means drawn out. And as he raises them, we have the ten plagues. As we have the ten plagues, God delivers the people out. And I think it's beautiful. God systematically disqualifies every god Egypt worships so that you would not take any with you. But they do anyways. Then there's the parting of the Red Sea, the writing of the first worship song by the guy who says that he's slow of speech. So maybe it was a bit of a rap. <laughs> and then he gives him the Ten Commandments. Interesting. He had disqualified ten gods. He had given ten plagues. And now he gives ten commandments. It's important to note that God did not give the ten commandments while they were slaves. God did not say, if you do these things, now I'll get you out. God said, let me get you out, and now let me keep you out. That's the idea. So understand, the book of Exodus is a book of salvation. The people have been saved out of Egypt, out of the hand of the enemy, out of the land of slavery. It is a book of deliverance in that sense, or at least removal. But it doesn't take long. God not only gives them the Ten Commandments, but he also says, now make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell among you. You know, since Eden, you could see God saying, you know, since Eden, we really haven't hung out much. And I'd really love to be among you. Show me another God that wants to be among his people. Our God loves to be among us. Rotten, nasty, filthy, goofy, messed up. He loves to be among us. Us, not him. He's not any of those things. What a great God. So the blueprints are given, the tabernacle is constructed, and as the tabernacle is constructed, thus ends the book of Exodus. It ends then, 
if you think about it, 40 and, uh, 401 years. 400 years in bondage, and then the one year they have since then. In that one year, they will make it to Sinai. That's where they will get the Ten Commandments, the blueprints for the, the tabernacle, and the tabernacle will be constructed for the first time. And as the tabernacle is constructed, God's glory fills the tent, and as God's glory fills the tent, we hit the book of Leviticus, which lasts a month. During that month, God says, No, let's get going. Now that we have the tabernacle, now that we have the camp, let's do something with it. Now that we have church, let's do something with it. So he raises up priests to serve, and he shows them the sacrificial system, and then he inaugurates the priests. And then he moves them to the Day of Atonement, that desire to be clean. And then to the feasts, where we gather together to celebrate our King. And then to keep our wick burning, our lights burning bright. And the book, uh, that book ends, if you remember, with this stark warning in the last chapter that says, to keep a vow will cost you, but to break it will cost even more. And that's how Leviticus ends. So now, the tabernacle has been constructed. The priests have been inaugurated. They're about business. Not without hardship. God made clear, if we're going to do this, I'm going to be viewed as holy. The book of Leviticus is a book of sanctification. How God sets apart his people. And he does it by the blood. His blood. Genesis, a book of sin. Exodus, a book of salvation. Leviticus, a book of sanctification. A two-pent word that just means setting you apart. You see, the moment you gave your life to Jesus, if you have given your life to Jesus, God began by placing his Holy Spirit in you and he starts to separate you from the rest of the world. Ironically, we may spend the rest of our time trying to look more like the world and God's making us look less like the world. You are fighting God. Get over it. And then he takes us to the book of Numbers. Twice in this book, chapter 1 and in 26, he's going to have us count the people. And as a matter of fact, go ahead and go to the next one of those, on that lovely shade of yellow. Do we have the, the next graph, the comparison of those? Um, there it is. Now, look at this. Is, this is basically the, the middle part of chapter 1. Did you notice that? Here, here is, get out of the way, here are all of the listings of by tribe of how many there are in chapter 1. This will be the, after, in chapter 26, what you'll see here, the difference by percentage and such. So you can kind of get a little bit of an understanding of how this plays out. Now, please understand, here's the interesting thing, that, okay, we get the idea of sin, and by the way, this is the same thing in all of our walks. You start with the idea that I'm a sinner, I need saving. Now understand, if you say Jesus saves, but if you don't think you're a sinner, what is Jesus going to save you from? Your life's a little rough. You know, from the, uh, the hike in prices for travel, that's what he's going to save you from? A little bit of discomfort? The fact that you may not like yourself, or you're getting older, or you wish you were prettier, stronger, more built, or whatever. That's it. But God isn't here to save you from something temporary first. He's here to save you from the eternal. And so we recognize, I'm a sinner, and all that means is I am not who I'm supposed to be. I'm not where I should be. I'm not the person I would like to be. So we cry out for a savior. But understand, saving means removing. Saving does not mean making you a little nicer in the place where you were. God needs to remove you from the hand of the enemy. God needs to destroy the land of slavery to get you out. He doesn't want you there. 
You don't belong there anymore. It's not where you are. You're a new creation now. So we get, so all of a sudden he goes, now that I have you out, I want to start setting you apart. I want to make you different. I want to make you so different that the world looks and goes, what happened to you? Any of you have that? Some people almost drop dead when they look at you after a while, if, if, after they've seen the change in you. And they look and go, what in the world? Who in the world are you? And like actually out of the world. That's the fun part. And then they think you're crazier. And you could tell them anything, isn't it true? You could say, you know what? I found yoga. I bathe in yogurt. I've been watching every day the you know, Lord of the Rings trilogy, Hobbit included. And they would be like, oh, cool. But you're like, I found Jesus. And they're like, what? You know, if you'd have said, you know what, actually, I found drugs. I've had, I can't tell you how many people have called me, husbands, wives, parents, that have called me angry because their kid is off of drugs, not running from the police, not impregnated or getting anyone pregnant anymore, but now they're actually on Jesus and I'm the brainwasher. And I'm like, can I just say, first of all, Jesus is the brainwasher because their brain was filthy and it needed to be cleansed. And you're upset with me because you used to smoke pot with your kid and now they're not. You need Jesus, lady. But here comes the crazy part. You ready? Now we move into this book. And when we move into this book, we've gone from sin to salvation to sanctification. Now we've got to see that God is sovereign and smart. It is a book of God's sovereignty. Now understand, some people use that as an excuse to do whatever they want. Oh, God is sovereign, so I'll do whatever I want. God's going to work it out. Yet, all throughout Scripture, God makes us, holds us liable, responsible for the choices we make. And you need to know that. He's not only sovereign, he's smart. He's so smart, he can take your rebellion and use it against you. People go, well, how did Satan do this? But I thought God did it. It's like actually both. Well, how did that work? God and Satan were working together? Actually, sort of a knot. See, God's so smart, he can actually let Satan do something, and it'll back on Satan. That's how smart God is. He's like, you can see God saying, yeah, go ahead and do that, Satan. Go ahead and, go ahead and play with Job for a moment. And you're like, well, I don't want that to be me. No, I wouldn't want it to be me either, but I tell you what. By the time it was done, God cleansed Job of what was still to be cleansed from Job. And he was able to go burn to Satan. And later on, he's going to go burn in a big way, but that's another story. Now, we get to this book, and here's the interesting thing. We start moving into the book of Numbers, and you know what's going to happen? God moves us, and everything starts to change now. And please, please hear me. What's the big thing we've seen so far in chapter 1? All the people who are able to do what? To go to war. That's the point here. See? I got you on that, right? Now listen. This particular book is a book where two things are going to be really predominant. Death and God speaking. It seems like a strange thing perhaps at first. Over 150 times we'll read, and the Lord spoke to Moses. Over 150 times. That's a lot of times. And we're going to find of that list that you have there at the, at the left, though there will appear to be small changes, of that 603,550 people, two of them are going into the promised land. Two of them. That means 603,548 people will die of that list. It is a book of death. Now please hear me.
When I first read this book, I remember how when we left Egypt, we left as a mixed multitude. There were some that were real excited about leaving, some that didn't want to leave at all. Some that really didn't know why they were there. Seemed like that was the majority. And I used to think, well, that's the church, right? There's some that are in love with Jesus, some got dragged by like their auntie or something, and then there were those who weren't sure really why they were there, they were just there. Maybe it's good pie or something afterwards. But, but then the Lord showed me, he's like, you know what, really, that's you. And see, the difference is radical. Because the moment he took it to me, and he's like, you know, inside you is a mixed multitude. There's a part of you that loves me so much. And there's a part of you that really still looks at the world that you came from and looks at it like glory days. There's a part of you that doesn't really know what in the world's going on. These days, that part's pretty predominant. Um, And when I realized that, I saw how merciful it was for that old generation to die in the wilderness. You see, the old man doesn't make it into the new world well. So the old man has to die. Interesting, this is the book of battles. You see, we came from slaves, and we went from slaves to sons. I mean, that's kind of how this started. But as we went from slaves to sons, I kind of get the idea here as I look at this, that there's so much more. I mean, now we go from wanderers to warriors. But please understand the big issue on this is that God doesn't want you to do it alone. All of a sudden, God starts to to tell you how the camp is made. It's been a year into it. And now God says, let's actually get organized. Let's make this so much more than a bunch of people who happen to say that they belong to me, coincidentally, together. And that can be church if we have no concerted interest. Now, I'm not talking about me. I'll, I'll tell, guarantee you, I will have a vision and a very clear direction of what I want because I'm on my face before the Lord for you and for me. And to be honest, because I like me enough that I don't want to stand guilty before God. But I also love you enough that I want to see you there. But people can just show up and it's like, well, we just kind of show up together. Now think about church, what church is. Church. We all kind of come in and we kind of sit down and we do our thing, we watch the show and we go home and that's it. That's it? That's what God intended? See, the problem is, is that what God says is now that you're mine and now that I'm setting you apart, that's Leviticus, right? Now that I'm setting you apart, battles are going to start happening. Battles are going to start happening. You know the most amazing thing in all of this? Is that though the battles are going to start happening, most of the battles will not be against other armies that these people are going to die from. It isn't like the Amalekites pop up, the Ammonites pop up, the Philistines pop up. That's not what you're going to see the most in this book. Oh, there will be those. But you know what it will be? It will be lust. It will be regret. It will be bitterness and anger and pride and vanity. Those are going to be the bigger battles for which 601,548 people won't make it because they will not, by faith, embrace God the way he intends. Listen, you ever wonder why it is? You're like, no, I'm saved. Why are all the battles happening now? You ever wonder that? Well, walk with me on this. Don't believe me. Look at the text with me, will you? Here's what it says. Verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, in the tabernacle of meeting. Notice, by the way, Moses is in, the, in church. He's in the tabernacle. On the first day of the second month, on the second year after they come out of the land of Egypt. So they've been there, by the way, in Sinai, 10, 11 months. He says, Take a census of the congregation of the children of Israel by their families, by their father's house, according to the number of names. 
every male individually from 20 years old and above who are able to go to war. (laughs) I saw it coming. It's interesting, David will take a census later. And when David takes a census, there will be 1.3 million men in his army. 1.3 million, that's a big army. Of course, God promises an army at the end that will be 200 million, so that's an even bigger army. The difference is, is radical. Understand that the Jewish people took censuses for, or sensei for, the same, for one primary reason, to find out how many men are going to fight. Now understand, it was a sin for David. And the reason it was a sin for David was because David had already trusted in the Lord. David stood before Goliath and the army of the Philistines, trusting in in the Lord's might. But as he got older, he couldn't fight like he used to. And as a result of that, he started to check and see what his backup was, what his fallback was, his army. What was interesting is how many of them would die. So understand, the idea of counting your fighting men is a foolish thing in regards to David, because it moves his confidence away from the Lord to people. But here, God says, Moses, you aren't David. You need to count these people, not because you need to know who you have in your army, but because, listen, 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 because the people need to know that they are an army. That's why. Because you've been slaves for so long. You've been suckers for so long. You've been under the thumb for so long. You need to recognize that this is not the pastor's battle. This is the church's ground to take. London is the church's ground to take. And until we believe that, we'll sit idly by. This is supposed to be boot camp. This is supposed to be the, 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 the meeting in the, you know, in the locker room before we go out and take the field. This isn't supposed to be a class where we just hope to write, write the answers right, tick the right boxes, and pass the test at the end. This is actually one of those, you know, you have to live it out kind of tests. Because you need to go out and you need to tell every man 20 years old and over. Now you need to recognize those are the same men that will say no when God will say from everyone 20 years old and over that didn't trust me isn't going to make it in. There's an age God held to accountability. Did you notice that? If you were 19, maybe you're like, dang it, I didn't get to be part of the army. Maybe you were like, great, I didn't get to be part of the army. But it's like, don't worry, you will turn 20 someday. And if you were one of those people that were 19, when, when we'll see by numbers 13, 14, when they don't want to go into the promised land and says, well, everyone 20 years older and, and older will die except for those two guys, I'd be very thankful to be 19. How about you? So God's like, once you're not a teen anymore, you're a teen. Now I've seen some guys, I'll be honest, that are 13, 14, that are more mature and more godly than many men that I've met that were 60. I'd rather have them lead a brigade. But there's still things to be done with that. But then David was more than likely a teen when he was called. Jeremiah was a teen when he was called. In this case, God says, look, I want you to number them because I want you to realize you're an army. And there are battles to be fought, beloved. There are battles to be fought for every one of us. And I want you to recognize that. Now listen, listen. Jesus says, and this is where it starts, we started as slaves. And Matt, I'm sorry, in John 8, 34, it says, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. Every human being is born a slave. You may not feel the shackles around your arms and hands. Hey, this is in no way to belittle people who have ever been in some form of slavery where they were kidnapped and the horror of it we've seen. And of course, it's all over the movies these days. It's very popular. But every person has been maltreated and has been a sucker to sin. And Jesus set you free. If you said yes to Jesus, he set you free. 
And you've become sons. Scripture says, by the way, that God has not given you the spirit again of bondage to fear, but the spirit of adoption, by which we cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. But now that God is making clear there is a battle to be fought, it is in this context, please hear me, it is in this context that God says, you're never to do this alone. He didn't do it by saying, now I want you all to sit, and I want you to sit with every one of those people individually. He says, gather them all together and say, look around you. Do you remember when this was 10 people in a living room? Hey, I'm not saying that this is the size of London. What I'm saying is that God is building an army. And we don't battle by physical force. We fight on our knees. And we wield the sword of the Spirit of of God, which is the Word of God. And we preach the gospel of the kingdom of God, which punches holes in the darkness, binds the enemy for which we walk in and take his stuff. Because he told us that such a confession, that even the gates of hell themselves couldn't prevail. And since we're not in hell, why would, we, why would the gates concern us? If we weren't there, if we're on the outside, and he says to those that are on the outside, the gates of hell can't prevail, apparently we must want to go back in to say, who's with me? I'm coming out. And Satan can't do anything. It's not like he's saying, no, stop. Well, there will be battles to be fought and he'll be involved. Let me lay out three basic battles that will be fought. Please, write these down if you would. Chances are you're in one of those now, whether you know it or not. The first battle, by the way, is in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. When he tells us, Do not love the world or the things of the world. For if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world... The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the boastful pride of life. So these things are not of the Father, but they're of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lusts thereof it. But he who does the will of God abides for it. The first battle you will fight will be the world. First John chapter 5 tells us that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. It's under his influence. The question is, how do you have victory over the world? Listen to this. Same book, First John chapter 5 verse 4. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, the issue in regards to the battle with the world is it's a battle over your faith. See, what the world says is, trust you. Don't trust anyone else. And the moment you say, yes, Jesus, you've overcome the world. But that doesn't mean the world doesn't stop fighting, does it? Every time you turn on a telly, trust yourself. You can even turn on quote-unquote Christian radio and hear songs, you've got to believe in yourself. Really? When did Disney and Jesus get married? It's unbelievable how much there is of that. And if I just believe, you know, and it's like the R. Kelly, you know, we used to call it the R. Kelly Doctrine. If I could dream it, I can achieve it. If I could just tell God my goals and my plans, he'll get behind it. You know why? Because I believe I can fly. So go ahead and jump. See how it works. But you know what it says? I trust you, Lord. And even if you slay me, I'm going to praise you. I trust you. And even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of darkness, even if I walk the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear because you're with me. I know that. I trust you, Lord. 
And anytime you're challenged not to trust the Lord, the world is involved. I watch people that are like, you know, I'm having this problem. I'm struggling with doubt these days more than ever. And I like to ask them, how much of the time are you spending in the world? And it's amazing. Without fail, people, when they're honest, will start to say, you know what? Actually, I'm spending more time than normal in the place where I didn't want to be before. You're like, well, how funny is that? The more you're in the world, the more you struggle with doubt. Do you get it? You know, that's like that one person that says, you know, every time I wear this pair of jeans, my stomach hurts. How do I stop my stomach from hurting? Do you have an answer for them? It's not very difficult. I think if you held your breath all day, that's what, you know, that's what the world says. Oh, it's okay. Just tuck it a little bit. There's surgery for that. The second, Galatians chapter 5 verse 16 Walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. The flesh lusts or wars, literally furies, against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. They are contrary to one another, so you do not do the things you wish. The second battle is the battle over the flesh. But understand what the flesh is. It's not just that you look and you want to have sex with somebody. Because if that's the case, some of you might that might be a little bit cooler tempered may feel like I've conquered the flesh. Simple truth is, the flesh is simply me first. That's all it is. Me first. And your flesh nature, you were born with. You were born, you didn't have to say, I mean, I don't know how it happens, but if you took a child, and you, they were just born, and you stuck them like Blue Lagoon on an island, with no human being to communicate with them, the only word that they would know is, Mine! Even if they had never spoken a word in their life, they would still know that word. I don't know how that works. And maybe, no. You've had children, you kind of know that one. But listen, when he says, the flesh wars against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, understand something. Your flesh nature will never convert. Your flesh nature will never get saved. That's why he says it has to die. It's, you know, understand, God understands the idea of capital punishment when it talks about your flesh. He says, mortify it. The two are against each other. Walking in the Spirit puts God first, you second, and me at the back of the queue. Walking in the flesh puts me first, and then everything that serves me next. And that is a battle we will face on a daily basis, if not more. And then the third, that of the enemy and his army. I want to make clear, the enemy is called the accuser and the opponent. Those are the terms for devil and Satan. That's what they mean. Accuser and opponent. Jesus has said in John 10, he came to steal, kill, and destroy. And can I just say, that's how you can tell when you're listening. See, the enemy can't take you and beat you up, sit on your bed, and then whoop while and then give you a bad hair day. According to scripture, it says in 1 John, don't believe me, look at it for yourself. 1 John 5, it says, whoever is born of God keeps himself, and the wicked one cannot touch him. I believe that. So if you're like, the devil's whopping on my head yesterday, you know, it's like, yeah, well, what, you know, this morning I just woke up and the, the enemy was beating on my head. What'd you do last night? I was out drinking. That's not the devil. That's called a hangover. <laughs> Please hear me. But when you hear someone and you listen, the enemy accuses. Man to God, God to man, man to man. Think about it. 
So when you start thinking, you ever have those moments where you judge and jury in your head? You start thinking, oh, if I were there, I would tell them this. I'd tell them, oh, I'd shut them down with this. Mm, because they did this. Oh, and they did this. And you're starting to keep a record of wrongs. What is that? That's accusations is what that is. Who do you think's telling you that? Do you think God's telling you that? Oh, you went ahead. Sorry, the next time you see them, give them the holy what for. That's not the holy what for, beloved. <laughs> and he comes to accuse. And you will fight that. But listen to this. How the battle of the world is over our faith, right? The battle over our flesh, if you think about it, is over who is first. The battle of the enemy. 1 Corinthians 10, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God, listen, for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, listen, and taking every thought captive. Do you know where the spiritual battle is? It's in your thought life. That's the idea. What, hey, maybe the enemy tries to whisper in your ear. The question is whether you choose to go, ooh, yeah, I should think about that some more. That's the thought life. But to take every thought captive says, I am not going to house and, enter- and entertain accusations against my brothers and sisters. And I'm certainly not going to entertain accusations against God. So something rough happens, and I'm not trying to make light of rough things that happen, but when you start saying, how could God, or you want to ask, why? Hey, let's face it, sometimes we do want answers. But God never promised, nor is he required to give them. To be honest, sometimes if he gave us the answer, we wouldn't even appreciate it until a latter date anyways. The one thing I do know is he's good. In the worst of times, he's good. When I was staring at one of my daughters dead on the pavement, he's good. My, by God's grace, he brought her back. But when older of our brother, who was in his pool of his own blood from an overdose, dead, God is still good. And he didn't revive him. In the end of it all, God is good. And I don't have to understand everything to know that. But the enemy would want to accuse. He'd want to accuse you to each other. He'd want to accuse you to me, me to you. He'd want to accuse God to you and you to God. But if Jesus washed all my sins so that I could stand perfect before the Father, who am I to turn around then and try to accuse someone else? I was just released from murder. I have no right to try to go and nail you on a misdemeanor. Well, with that in mind then, we get that. No, notice it says then, verse 17. Moses and Aaron took these men as they had been mentioned by name. And they assembled a congregation. Notice we're all there together on the first day of the second month. And they recited their ancestry by families, fathers' houses, according to number of names, 20 years old and above. Why did they do that? Why did they recite their ancestry? Listen, because a warrior must be family. And please hear me on this. Hey, it's one thing when what you're having is something that's an internal ministry. We're going to pull everybody together and we're going to minister to each other. But the moment you're going to go out into the world and start kicking down the doors of darkness, your team needs to be, your warriors need to be family. Because otherwise, you've got a guy with a gun in your own team you're not sure is going to shoot you. Truth be told. And that's what happens here. He says, look it, these guys that are going to lead the troop, they're going to have to be God's people. That's just the way it is. 
And it's scary because this can be the case. Now look at there. Now look at. I don't want to diss other people's houses, but I know places that hire musicians just because they're good musicians that don't even love the Lord, that don't even know the Lord. To be honest, in many cases, it could be interfering with knowing the Lord. They're like, oh, they'll know him better. Why? They were good enough without it. If you know the thing that the people have to sign just to play up here, I mean, they take a really hardcore commitment because they don't want to do anything to trip you up. That's how serious they are about you. Listen, I'm going to step up with it. If we're going to go to battle, I don't want flabby people. I mean, in the end of it, spiritually flabby people are not going to cut it when the bullets start flying. And understand, you want people next to you that will really not fall asleep on their guard. Isn't that true? Now, I understand the idea, again, of an internal thing. Hey, our whole purpose is to get people in and love on them here and watch them come to know the Lord. But the moment you're going and you're advancing to take ground, be careful who's on your team. These guys had to recite their ancestries. Nobody could play this. Nobody goes, well, I'm Jewish. What tribe are you from? The tribe of... What tribes again? You know, the, those guys. And when it says in, in 2 Corinthians 6.14 to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, do you know what it means to be yoked? It means the two of you are put together for the same mission. Two oxen were put with the same thing upon them to walk the same direction so that they can go and pull a plow. What happens when you have two that are unequally yoked? You have a big one and a little one. The big one gets chafed. The little one gets pulled. They both wind up exhausted. You know what you have at the end of it all? A barbecue. That's all that's left for it. And you watch this. And we say, well, of course, that's about marriage. I'm not getting married to an unbeliever. And we watch enough of that and it drives me mental, right? Because it's like in the, in the beginning, they've got to be like Jesus. And then, well, Jesus breathed. That's enough. These people breathe. But, you know, like Jesus. I'm like, what happened? He says he's a Christian on his, you know, profile. Really? So does Satan. According to the Corinthian letters, it says that Satan himself masquerades himself as an angel of light. I guarantee you, if Satan had an e-harmony profile, it would not say, you know, ruler of the dark world. It would say, Christian, deacon, Bob, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I'm trying to pick on that deacon, Bob. You get the idea. But you realize, anything that we put ourselves to the mission together is yoking. Not just marriage. Don't ever expect a person that's ever going to serve here in any capacity to be anything but in love with Jesus. That's my heart's prayer. And, and I, I can't tell that. But I can, get, I, can, I can ascertain certain things to see at least that it points in that direction. Because look, I love you guys enough. I don't want anyone here that's going to lead you astray. And that includes me. I'd rather die than see that happen. Hey, being unequally yoked is a huge deal. And it's so much more than just marriage. It's anything that you yoke. Hey, Ephesians 2.3 tells us that we were originally children of wrath. But Romans 8.15 says now we've been adopted. Now that's how we become family. The question is, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ's death on your behalf, resurrection three days later, to, ex- to allow him to be Savior and Lord of your life? That's the choice you have to make. This is what makes adoption so profound, is that you as the adopted get to choose whether or not you want to be adopted. It was nine years ago, the 4th of July, we were sitting in the white swan in, Guan, in uh, Nanjiang when they brought us into this hotel room and then brought this beautiful little girl in. And we knew the moment we saw her, she was ours for the rest of our life. She would carry our last name. Her name originally is Sen Yuchun, which means spring leaves. And of course, for those of you who can speak Chinese, I'm sorry. That's as close as I can get. 
What's funny is no matter how many times I'd say it, they try to correct me, right? So Senyi Jun. No, Senyi Jun. Okay, Senyi Jun. What's her name in English? And I said Ruthie. They go, Luthi. I'm like, no, Ruthie. So, we're even. But the big difference is this. Is that Ruthie really didn't have a choice. It wasn't like she could say, no, I don't want these guys. She was 13 months old. You do have a choice. See, though Jesus died on the cross for all of your sins so that all of them could be paid for, and that we rose again and has the right to be and deserves to be the Lord of your life, you can say no to go and go to hell. You could say, well, why would a loving God send me there? Hey, hello, he just put Jesus in your way? Don't tell me God sent you there. You sent you there. He gave you a way out. You're like, well, I didn't want Jesus as my Lord. Why? And then it's like, well, then why would God take you to heaven where is his home when you don't want to live with him? He wants you. He genuinely wants you. So then, for the rest of the chapter, count your men. And as you count your men, by the way, what we find is, by the way, Judah tops the scale with 74,600. The tribe that was split in half, by the way, interestingly enough, on both sides of the Jordan, if you remember, the tribe of Manasseh was the smallest. I think there's something to learn from that. And by the way, you know that the enemy comes to divide. Hey, any person that comes to divide Christian against Christian... Watch them. I guarantee you the enemy's at work. If they ask, so where do you stand on this? I understand sometimes people are asking that because they genuinely just want to know. Most of the time they want to draw lines and find out which camp you're in. Bring it back to Jesus and see where it goes. It's amazing what happens. So the total, 603,530. Now, by the way, then it comes to the end of this chapter. Notice at the end of the chapter, because we've looked at the list, you can see upon us. Then he says, but the Levites, what about them? They aren't fighting. They aren't part of the battle. Actually, can I say, yes, they are. As we bring this to close, listen up on it, please. One group was in the war in another way. They attended to God's dwelling, which God told us was, the, listen, 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 was the place of his testimony. That was the term he used. Notice it, by the way, verse 53. Look at it with me. The Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony. And then it says, and the Levites shall keep charge of the tabernacle of the testimony. What do they do? Well, they prep for mobility. They carry. They set up. They camp around it. They live there. What is their job? Please hear me. Because interestingly enough, though God wants you all to know that you are all called to be warriors, there are people that God ordains specifically for you to note that God needs to be at the center of the camp if we're going to win the battle. And there are people specifically, understand, they are not absent of the battle. But actually, they're a key part of the battle. They're the key part that keeps dragging you down to the one place where victory is found. So the tabernacle has to be standing. And if you're going, the tabernacle needs to go with you. And, the God, and that God of the tabernacle needs to be there. Listen, the testimony needs to be there if we want victory. And the testimony is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What is it? I just told you. Jesus died for your sins, according to Scripture, was buried, rose again on the third day, according to Scripture, and was seen by a lot of people. Now choose Him as Lord and Savior, and watch Him become the Savior and start that beautiful journey for yourself. Now those people, by the way, they might not go and grab, a, grab an axe or grab a sword, at least is the way we know it. But all the sword swinging in the world will gain nothing if God's not in the center of the camp. 
And you know what happens? You, get start, you start a ministry with the very best intentions and you get so busy swinging your axe and poking your sword for so long you forget even why you're doing it. And you think doing something nice is good enough but God's not in the center of the camp anymore and you wonder why you're working so hard and getting so little done. I'll tell you why. Because God has ordained a group of people to irritate you enough to remind you, is he in the center of this? The center of this. And there will always be those that will say, well, God could be a byword, but you can't have God as a byword in a ministry. When it's God's people, God is in the center of that ministry. Now, we're going to start a ministry, and maybe Jesus will be mentioned. How was he in the middle of that ministry? How was he in the center of that camp? Because he needs to be the center of that camp if you really want to see the victory that God intended. That's why he puts the Levites where they are. And he says, look it, while, but here's the thing, while you guys are out swinging your swords, these guys are still out giving sacrifice. Because we want to actually be clean in our conscience. We want to make sure that's the case. Now listen, one last thing, and we'll close this up. There's one key point to the entire second chapter. Read through it with me once, and I'll point it out. Ready? Thank you. You ready? Yeah. Okay, look at Look what it says. Now God is a place for everything. Look at The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard. That's a flag. Beside the emblems of his father's house, they shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. There will be four standards. Note. Verses 3 through 9. The east side boys. Towards the rising of the sun... Those of the standard of the forces of Judah shall camp according to their armies. Nashon, remember those guys we got listed? They'll all be here. Son of Amidadab shall be the leader of the children of Judah. The army numbered at 74,600. Those who camp next will be the tribe of Issachar. Nathanael, the son of Zuar, shall be the leader of the children of Issachar. The number of theirs, by the way, 54,400. Then comes the tribe of Zebulun, Eliab, the son of Helon, shall be the leader of the children of Zebulun. And the army will be numbered at 57,400. All those who are numbered according to the armies of the forces with Judah, 186,400 shall break camp. Now look it. Ready? Here we go. I'm going to just try to do this. I'm going to break you up into four groups. We're almost done. Please stick with me for a moment. Ready? So here you go. The back group right there, you're going to be the east side boys and gals. Okay? Ready? Now this is all you need to know. You need to know one number. Here is your number, 186,400. Your turn. Okay, how much was that again? Very good. Eastside boys, 186,400. Now remember, this is only the fighting men. You have, remember, 601,550 people that are fighting men between 20 and 60. Add wives, children, grandpas, nans. You've got well between two to four million people. You with me so far? Eastsiders, how many you got? Beautiful. Southsiders, y'all, y'all the Southside boys over here, okay? Southside. Where I come from, Southside. There should be standard, there will be Reuben, according to their armies. The leaders of the children of Reuben will be Alizur, son of Shadur. The armies that are numbered with him, 46,500. Those that came next to him will be Shimaon, the leader of the children of Shimaon is, by the way, Shalumiel, the son of Zerushadai. And by the way, then it says the number for him, 59,300. Also with him is Gad. And Gad, the leader of the children of God, is Elishaf. And with Elishaf, a son of Ruel, 
which by the way means friend of God. What a great name. The army is numbered, by the way, 45,650. So now you ask, what's the total amount for them? Ready? 151,450. Now you try that. 151,450. Did you get that? Okay, Southsiders, what is it? 151,450. Beautiful. East Boys, East Siders. Beautiful. Okay, here we go. Ready? West Side, you in the back right here. You're the West Siders. Well, I can, you even have your own story, and it's a musical? Anyways. All right. So, shall be the standard with those of Ephraim, according to their armies. Ephraim, by the way, is Elishema, the son of Emichud. Um, by the way, his army was numbered at 40,500. Then comes Manasha. Manasha, by the way, uh, the leader is Gamaliel, the son of Bedachzur. I want to make sure I said that right. There's, but with them, it's 32,200. And then comes Benjamin. With Benjamin, the leader, by the way, Abedan, son of Gideoni. Um, and there's 35,000. 400. East Siders, 108,100. Your turn. Okay, here we go. Ready? Here we go. Well, it's West Side. You're West Siders. Our West Siders are? Beautiful. West Siders. Wait a minute. Sorry. West Siders. Oh, this is really confusing now, isn't it? West Siders. East Siders. Did you see how close that was? What were those numbers again? 180,100. Okay, and? A little bit bigger, huh? Last group, by the way. Last group. Don't worry. This is it. Now listen. The standard that shall be with Dan, by the way, according to it. The guy's a chetzer, for son of Amishadai. By the way, he has 62,700. Asher, by the way, the leader of the children of Pagel, is Pagel, the son of Achlan. By the way, he has 41,500. Naphtali, by the way, son is Ahira, son of Enan. By the way, then he has 53,400. And that means, by the way, then you guys up here in the front, that's you are now the Northsiders, and the Northsiders are 157,600. What's your number? Okay, beautiful. So here we go. Ready? North is? South is? Not so bad. You're like, why are we getting these numbers? Watch what happens. West Siders. East Siders. Ooh. Now we've got these numbers, right? We've covered them up. And notice he says, by the way, with four different standards. Okay, so now no, follow me on this for a second. If we were to take them and we put them in the camp, what's at the center of the camp? The tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, you have to have the east siders, the west siders, the south siders, and the north siders. Does that make sense? So you put them out? Well, what would happen if you put those numbers out on a graph? Let me show you what it looks like. <laughs> like... This. That's not it. Like this. There it is. Look at these numbers. 186,400 versus 108,100. 151,400. 157,000. Does that look kind of interesting to you? Later on in the book of Numbers, later on in the book of Numbers, this guy hires this prophet, this renegade Ronin prophet, right? Balach, right? 
And he takes him up. And at one point, he takes him up on a ridge. And as he takes him up on a ridge, and we'll get there, he looks and he sees, listen, and God makes specific note. It says, he sees Israel encamped. And he says, I see him, but not now. He just starts speaking about Jesus. And he looks, and this is what he sees. Is that an interesting thought? And you read, oh, these numbers. Why did we have to say these numbers? The guy couldn't even figure out what side was west. This is why. Listen, four standards. What are those four standards? Last thing, and we pray. Interesting, those four standards, when you actually look at the Talmud, and I'm not saying the Talmud scripture by any means, when the Talmud quotes it, this is what they say, and this is from the treatise of Shikha, by the way, Chechiga from the Babylonian Talmud, by the way, commenting on Exodus 15, it says, there are four different standards, and this is what they are. The lion, because it's the king over all living creatures. The ox, because it's the king over domestic beasts. The eagle, because it's the king of birds. And man, because God placed them over all of them. Interesting, because if you look at Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 10, when we go to scripture which is true, and we're sure of it. Those living creatures, their faces, had the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Revelation chapter 4, the four living creatures. What did they have? A lion, a calf, a man, and an eagle. Which is interesting, because if you look at the four Gospels, the, four, the first of them, Matthew presents Jesus as the King of Kings, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. The second... Mark presents Jesus as the servant of all, the ox, the greatest servant. Luke presents Jesus as man, focuses on births, by the way, because Jesus is man. John presents Jesus as the eagle, God in the flesh. You understand, they were the four symbols that made its way onto this, the, the, the um, veil that got torn that let God that showed us that God was coming out all the way in, in the temple that we'll see later. Beloved, hear me on this. God has made you an army. He's making you warriors. But listen, the battles you're going to fight, don't fight them alone. The battle of the world, the battle of your flesh, the battle of the enemy, don't fight those alone. We come here, but when we camp, that's what it should look like. Because if we camp and it looks like our church... It's the Calvary dove instead of the cross of Christ. We're in trouble. If it looks like the Holy Spirit hour, we're in trouble. Because we can do all kinds of things and be selfish and proud and competitive and arrogant, but never pick up our cross and follow Christ like he intended. And you know, you want to walk in victory, pick up your cross and follow Jesus and watch what happens. Because beloved, I believe God is about to set London on its ear and I believe he wants to use you to do it. And I'm not leading you into that battle. Jesus is leading us into that battle. But if we're willing to camp right, you always can find the Lord. He's at the center where he belongs. Will you pray with me? Lord, I thank you so much for this beautiful text and a great way to kick off numbers, Lord. Certainly, Lord, we've gone through two chapters and an, 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 uh, an introduction. Woo-hoo. Thank you, Lord for the privilege today of being able to say yes to you, for the honor, Lord, of being a part of this battle. And we recognize, Lord, that you promised us that battles will happen. You didn't tell us that life would, would be without challenges. You told us that even those who built their house on the rock would incur, would, be, would incur storms. But what they 
The difference is, is that the house would stand. So Lord, I pray right now for every person here that you would not allow us, Lord, to escape what you want to tell us today. And Lord, that you would make us the, the family you ordained for us to be. Lord, you would make us the army you ordained for us to be. And Lord, today, please today, move in our hearts, Lord, move in our hearts. Lord, I pray for those that are hot in the battle right now. The battle of the world, the battle of the flesh, the battle of the enemy's lies. Today, Lord, set them free. Give them the victory, Lord, that only you can give. And I know, Lord, it starts with a simple cry to you for whoever calls on your name will be saved. So if there be any in this room right now who have yet to say yes to Jesus Christ, yet to say yes to his offer on the cross, I'd like to lead you in a simple prayer. And at the end, if you agree, you are saying, I, I agree, amen. You are saying, let this prayer be my prayer now. And this, from this day on, you will be adopted by the King of Kings. And here's the prayer. God, I confess to you, I'm a sinner. And that sin must be punished. But I believe that you sent Jesus to die on the cross to punish me of my, to punish my sins without having to punish me. And Jesus died on the cross just like you promised. Was buried and rose again to prove that the punishment was enough and that you offer me new life now. Because you died for me, I confess you as my savior. Because your sacrifice was enough, I confess you as my ransom. And because you resurrected, I confess you as my Lord now. I hand you my life and ask for you to adopt me, Father, and make me yours. I surrender to you. I make the choice today. I surrender to you in Jesus' name. I am yours. And if you agree, I ask you to say, Amen.